welcome Benny Phillips. Wow. Well, I don't know about that introduction. I think the thing that I mainly feel about it is old. Um, that just, when he said he's been a part of Song Grace for 20 years, it's like, wow, that's a long time. And then realizing that was only half the time that I've been involved. So it is good to be here. Thank you for uh, giving me this opportunity. It, Cherie was telling me just what a wonderful time that uh, the ladies had uh, at the retreat. Thank you, ladies, for just your humility, your vulnerability, just how you responded uh, by her recollections very, very well. And, and what a wonderful time it is, uh, time it was. Uh, Aaron asked me to share a little bit uh, about myself, but I think the ladies probably learned all they really needed to know about me at the retreat because it takes quite uh, an irritating, frustrating person to get Cherie to throw her phone at them. And uh, so she, she told the story of, of throwing a phone at me one time. I just wanted to clear her reputation that uh, you'd have to be around me when I'm irritating and frustrating and you'd probably throw more than a phone. But anyway, uh, but that's all you really need to know about me. Uh, you know, that a godly woman like her could get so irritated. I, sorry about that. Hope that wasn't my fault. Um, yes, turn in your Bibles to Romans 15. Cherie and I are in the process of um, transitioning out of leadership, the church there. I'm turning the church over to uh, one of my sons, Jesse. And uh, we have begun a counseling ministry called Redeemer Counseling Group. And uh, we've been involved with biblical counseling for a long, long time. I mean, we, we've, we've been involved with CCF since 1994, I think. Something like that. Maybe even 92. But even before that, uh, you know, the, uh, what was the name of that manual? Self-confrontation manual, yeah. So I don't know how many of you ever saw that manual, but uh, I'm sorry. Uh, no, I'm just kidding. Uh, it was, it, you know, I, <clears throat> I, my one claim to fame in the counseling realm is that uh, I was actually at the first um, Biblical Counseling Foundation's uh, first gathering of leaders in 1974 with... Jay Adams. I was actually at that meeting. And it took being involved from 1974 until now. Uh, <clears throat> actually, a lot more work should have been done in that time than has actually been done in my life. But in 1974, I was just a, a young kid who 
was serving in a, another church, and uh, what a privilege it was to be a part of that. But then also, over the past years, our association with CCF. Anyway, so that's a little bit about us and what we're doing. But I want to share this passage of Scripture with you um, <clears throat> to give you kind of a, uh, an understanding of, of what I feel and think and believe about the significance of the church when it comes to our growth and sanctification. Uh, we are dependent upon the word, no doubt, but there is a purpose in biblical fellowship that God has designed for us in terms of our growth. So I'm going to read Romans chapter 15, just verse 14. I'm going to refer to some other verses, but this is the one I'll be uh, working from. Paul says, I myself am satisfied about you. He has just gone through and given an incredible gospel presentation in the first uh, 11 chapters. Chapters 12 through 15, he makes some outstanding application. And then it looks like he's doing his benediction in verse 13 when he says, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. That sounds like a typical Pauline uh, ending, if you will, to a letter. Then he says, I want to say something else about you. I myself am satisfied about you, my brothers, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge and able to instruct one another. Father, I pray that you would help us this morning. God, grant your grace uh, to help us to understand, to respond in faith, to believe your word, and to commit ourselves to change. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Beth is a, a married woman in her 30s in your community group. She's a committed Christian who relates to others with a lot of warmth and care. Yet Beth finds it hard to open up about her personal life in group settings. She greatly enjoys ladies' meetings, her weekly small group and informal times with friends. But when questions are asked that require vulnerability and disclosure of even mild struggles or weaknesses, Beth remains silent. She fears being judged, misunderstood, or rejected. She's also afraid that her honesty will invite being made fun of or mocked in some way. No one is aware of Beth's struggles due to her solid commitment to involvement in the church and faithful attendance at the meetings. But Beth is becoming increasingly confused by her hesitance to open up to others. 45-year-old Greg, along with his wife and children, have been faithful members of your church for years. The Grahams live a comfortable lifestyle due to Craig's success as a commercial architect. Susan opens up briefly with you, and you're surprised to learn that Greg has returned to his pre-conversion addiction to alcohol. About a year ago, after nearly 20 years of occasional drinking, Greg began drinking daily. Two recent outbursts of anger during weekend alcohol binges left Susan and their two adolescent children feeling unsafe and afraid. Susan had appealed to Craig to talk to me, but he has repeatedly refused because he is simply 
drinking some to manage the stress of a demanding job and rising conflicts with one of their teens. Craig also told Susan he felt he was experiencing the common struggles men face in the typical midlife crisis and was simply asking for her understanding and patience. Lisa came into my office, an attractive 25-year-old, married for two years. She met Dave in college where he had befriended her after a difficult breakup with her boyfriend. He was an athlete who was quiet, a bit shy, but listened well. They became good friends, hung out a lot, drank some together and talked. They became intimate. She became pregnant and felt the right thing to do was marry, even though her parents advised against doing it simply because of the baby. She was depressed, confused by his lack of motivation, playing video games all the time, working menial jobs. She felt trapped and knew she didn't love him and had married the wrong man and was dealing with attraction to and attention from a co-worker. The reason why I am involved in what we typically call counseling ministry. Really, prefer to refer to it as personal ministry. And the reason why I locate that ministry in my local church and have been doing it for years in the context of my local church, will continue to do it in the midst of my local church even as we transition to a, a separate ministry is because... There's a few things that I know and that you should probably be aware of yourself. First, I do that because I am convinced that we need, as churches, to develop a strategy for personal ministry to one another. I'm convinced of this because I know that someone here had a problem this week. Maybe even a very difficult problem. And those who are visiting with us this morning had a problem this week. I'm convinced of this because I believe that we have everything that we need in the gospel to help those people. People seek help first from friends, then family members, or even pastors before they go to professionals. As much as the professional counseling ministries out there, or professional counselors, I should say, uh, are growing and we're becoming much more uh, conversant with uh, that whole realm of uh, life, People still look to the one closest to them, those who are around them, if they're looking, if they're asking at all. Part of the problem is they don't feel comfortable to ask because we haven't established a very welcoming uh, atmosphere for personal ministry. But when they do ask your help, my help, the church's help. They either get no help, bad help, or a real gospel-centered help. 
And I've learned that even though I believe myself to be very gospel-oriented, very gospel-centered, I still on occasion, more often than I want to admit, fall into the trap of giving advice to people. And that's always a bad idea. Unless a person says, no, no, I don't want you to ask me more questions. I want to know what you think. I try not to offer advice. Now, Cherie's great at this. Uh, I am not. I am, I love to give advice because I love to be right about stuff, but I'm often not. But when a person receives help, it will be used to help others. So not only do we need a strategy for personal ministry, but I also believe that God has placed us here, placed you here in this church, us here on the earth, to help one another and those with more difficult and confusing brokenness than we ever at times thought imaginable. And I believe, based on this scripture and many others, we are competent to do this. I believe that because what Paul's talking about here, who he's talking here to, is the church. And he says, you have all that you need. The reason why I know we can do this is because the scripture says that we can. There are two key words in this verse. Able and admonish, or in this ESV version, it's instruct. Now, able simply means competent. Admonish literally means put to mind. And really, it's, it's put to mind by speaking, not necessarily by action. It's, it's, it's talking about face-to-face ministry with people. And it's translated various ways in scriptures. It's warn, advise, uh, admonish. Uh, but in those sections of scripture, it's, it's the idea Paul sets to, to the Ephesian church, I think it is in, in, in uh, Acts 17, that, that I admonished you with tears. Admonition is not just correction. It's not just warning. It, it is a caring. And, and one of the things that, that we in the Reformed tradition understand is how central the Scripture is to all that we do. And I believe it's the reason why our, our meetings are, are built around the preaching of the Word is because it is central to everything that we do. So teaching and instruction is absolutely crucial to everything we do. And the Scripture is what we preach from. But the Scripture is also what we care from. And that... that this centrality and uh, importance that's placed on teaching and instruction a lot of times ends up being our default go-to in other situations and other scenarios. We end up in our, in our home groups at times just simply going over and talking about what the Bible said and what the preacher said that morning. Now, I don't know what your community groups are like. I'm not like I'm not making a comment there. It's just my experience 
in terms of the, the churches that, that, which are mostly Sovereign Grace churches, that, that I'm doing stuff in, is that, 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 that is one of the traps that they fall into, where it's, where, which is nothing wrong with talking about the word in community group. But there's stuff going on in that room. And if the word of God was preached effective on Sunday, which I'm pretty sure it is, there would be opportunities to see and to ask and to find out what God is doing in each other's lives. I want, to, I want you to turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. Colossians chapter 3, or open up your Bible apps to Colossians chapter 3, which you can get there quicker than I can because you're poking on things, and I'm turning these pages. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. A couple of things. Paul's first couple of chapters of Colossians has really preached the supremacy of Christ in a powerful way. I mean, the gospel was made clear. And he says then, if you've then been raised with Christ, verse 1, seek the things that are above. And then he goes through and says, put to death. And then lays out all of the things that we need to turn away from and put away from. He instructs them on the whole idea of, of putting off the old man. Okay, And then he starts in and says, and put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. And listen to what he's telling us to put on. Compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you. Put on love, which binds everything together. When we talk about that we are able to admonish, we are competent to counsel, to Steal J. Adams' phrase. There, there, there is behind that a context. What makes us competent is not just our knowledge of the Word of God, but it's the right application of the Word of God, the living out of the Word of God. And yes, he is instructing them to develop character in their own lives. But he's also saying, be this to one another. Karina and I had the privilege a few years back. We got a call from another pastor in that church. And was, was trying to figure out how to deal with a, an individual who was um, in his mid-40s successful uh, uh, businessman owned his own uh, construction company um, he had he had returned to his uh, early adulthood use of meth and it was having an effect upon the marriage and and they they were thinking about and his group were thinking about the the, the need to to do church discipline. And he was wanting my advice. And, and so as we talked, and 
obviously I brought Cherie into this as well because this was, a, you know, it's like, okay, I, <laughs> we need to pray. We need to think about this. And, I, and we talked. But the main thing that I felt in that situation was this man knows that he's a sinner. He knows he should not be using meth. I don't need to tell him, stop using meth. Stop doing all of that. What he needed was his church to gather around him and care for him even in a messy, difficult, challenging, nobody knows what to do situation. And the ones who did know what to do at the rehab centers, he had already beaten them twice. And he was very clear. He said, you can take church discipline if you want, but I tell you, I'm just going to beat it. I need, to, I need God. So he was open. But man, it was a battle. But it was compassion, kindness, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, especially his wife, so forbearing in the midst of all this, for him to be able to defeat that demon that was, he's four years sober, leads a community group at his church, and, and we're still working on the marriage thing with him. But they are, they are working hard. I've actually gotten to know one of his sons, too, who's quite a uh, <clears throat> talented young man. But anyway... I think what's important for us as we think about this personal ministry to one another, I think it'd be important for me to make a couple of comments about biblical counseling because biblical counseling is um, a tool, if you will, to help us understand how to do personal uh, ministry. Now, I think the first thing I'd want to do is I would want to kind of demystify the terms a little bit in terms of biblical counseling. Because when we talk about biblical counseling, we, we want to root our thoughts in the scripture, not in the cultural understanding of, of counseling. The phrase biblical counseling is referring to, at least as we use it, is referring to application of God's word to specific individuals in specific situations. It's, it's making application. It's, it's sanctification in our lives through our love for one another, through Scripture, through our living life together as a church. The goal of biblical counseling is to help people understand and to know God better and learn how to handle every day's, everyday situations, circumstances, everyday brokenness, everyday sinful temptations, and giving in to those sins in a way that honors and glorifies God. 
Counseling is just conversation. It is ministry from one person to another. Biblical counseling, so it's the word counseling, it's conversation, ministry to one another, face-to-face in most cases. It's specific. It's personal. Biblical counseling happens at least every Sunday in this church, in this room. Before the meeting, in the toddler room if you have one, during the break, after the meeting at lunch, communicating care and love for one another, even in just brief conversations. Oh, hey, didn't you have a doctor's appointment this week? How did that go? Tell me about that. Now, when you do that, be ready because they may say, oh, it's fine. Everything was fine. Or you may then end up with someone bawling right into you. And you got to know that's God at work. And you also have to know you are able, you are able, you are competent to respond to that. Now, maybe you don't feel competent, and maybe you do need more instruction on how to do things. But God has graced you. Counseling is also a form of discipleship. It's intensive, it's remedial, it's problem-oriented. All of those things are, are involved in the process of counseling. Bible study, accountability, even at Starbucks. It can happen. But it's also intentionality. It's a form of biblical fellowship, if you will, that is... See, biblical fellowship... Let me say this. We do a whole seminar on biblical fellowship, and, and, and it's very, very hard for me to kind of narrow it down. But, but if you can think of biblical fellowship in terms of intentional conversations with each other to learn how to pray for one another. Don't start the conversation by saying, what can I pray for? Because then you're going to get, well, the kids are sick and grandma's driving me crazy and, you know, the dog died or whatever. You're going to get those kinds of things. Ask questions. Ask questions. Intentional questions. How, how did your week go? How's, Cherie's case, somebody would say, how's the bonehead of a husband doing? Intentional conversations and biblical counseling, the word biblical, means that the content of what we do comes from Scripture. Love this quote by D. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We have somehow got hold of the idea that error is only that which is outrageously wrong. And we do not seem to understand that the most dangerous person of all is the one who does not emphasize the right thing. And what he's driving at there is that the right thing that we emphasize is always the gospel. It's always the gospel. There is a certainly a call of the gospel that calls us to repent, that calls us to change, but there is also a comfort in the gospel 
that there is mercy and grace and patience and compassion found in the gospel. And we want to live that way with one another. Now, I could talk about the significance of Scripture. I could talk about things like just the, the uh, foundation that it is, you know, in our lives. Uh, how the Scripture is sufficient for everything. The, the, it, it's, the Bible is clear about everything. I could talk about that, but I don't think in this church that I necessarily have to sell you on the idea that the Bible is inerrant. And that the Bible is totally sufficient for all of our problems, situations, brokenness, sin. But if we don't intentionally engage with others... Being patient and kind and forbearing and loving. The effectiveness of Scripture is going to be hindered. Scripture makes it very clear the gospel is to be preached, it's to be spoken. And not talking about just simply preaching from a pulpit. But you living out the word of God, declaring the word of God with your life, declaring the word of God with your mouth, demonstrating the character of the gospel in everyday situations, everyday life. One of the things that that I love about what we do talk about how we do things is the fact that what we're talking about you know when we talk about uh, biblical fellowship and we talk about care for one another when we talk about care there is the there's the servant kind of care that the bible talks about people have needs you you know somebody has a baby you bring meals tornado takes down a house you go help build it back up i mean those kinds of serving kinds of things are definitely a a part of what caring for one another means. But when we, when we talk about care for one another, there's a couple of things. First of all, just a little side note. Pastoral care, those two words, are never used in the Scripture. Pastoral care is just a pastor doing care. Okay? So... Aaron does pastoral care. Well, you do plumbing care. You know, I mean, you're you're a plumber who cares. We have the same care, one for another. He doesn't have any advantage over you. You've got the same word he does. Now, he may know more than you at this point, but that's not always helpful. If I could rattle off scriptures just like that, my tendency, because I want to advise so often, would be, you know, the Bible says, it says right here, do this, 
And listen, nothing wrong with calling people's attention to Scripture. And, and, and calling them from the Word of God, calling for change. But if that call to change doesn't come with care for your soul, it's going to feel like, okay, I have to live up to this. I have to, I have to do this. I ha-, you know, rather, no, 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 we're going to walk through this thing together. And that, for me has made all of the difference in how I understand what God is doing in the earth today. Now, I said I was going to be talking about the church, and I, and I am. I'm getting there. And I'm sorry, because I, I need to move on and get there. But it, if we don't understand this personal ministry aspect of things, how significant it is and how pervasive it needs to be in our midst, We will go to community group periodically and we will offer thoughts about what the message meant to me. We will engage in activities at the church and all of these things are wonderful, by the way. They're all great. But we won't be thinking of ourselves as those who offer care for the soul. Paul says to the Corinthians, have the same care one for another. The idea of care is not a pastoral idea. A pastoral idea is tending the flock, leading the flock, feeding the flock, Caring for the flock when, you know, they wander and bring them back. And if they're hurt, patch them up a little bit. But, but that's a totally different thought. It's a totally different idea than same care one for another. Same care one for another is saying, put on compassion and kindness and humility and meekness and patience and bear with one another. And if somebody has a complaint, forgive As the Lord has forgiven you, put on love which binds everything together. Let the peace of Christ rule. And then it does end by talking about how the word of God informs that and it richly dwells within us. It's never divorced from the word of God. But in all of the challenges and difficulties that that, that people have, we have to remember first. The Bible is the lens through which everything else is viewed, okay? But the Bible also communicates not just a, uh, a preaching of the gospel, but a methodology, if you will, a philosophy of how to think about care, a meth- methodology of counseling, methodology of care. We derive these things that I'm talking about, this type of same care one for another from the scripture. We think about being biblical, not just in the words that we say from the page, but in how we say them, when we say them, to whom we say them to, and to how they feel about us toward them. Do they feel our love and care and compassion? That is a methodology. That is what we are talking about. 
and now the church. We've talked for years and we will continue to talk about the, that the church is central to the purpose of God. Always has been. Church has always been central to the purpose of God. Central to the purpose of the church is biblical fellowship, preaching the gospel to one another, caring for one another, loving one another. It really is that face-to-face ministry, that biblical counseling, if you will. And (laughs) the church provides the platform, it provides the the, um, format, the context, that's the word I'm looking for, provides the context for how we live our lives. Sorry, I have to keep walking out of the sun because it's getting right in my face. The, the, I like you guys over there, but it's a lot cooler on this side. The, the things that we do with our lives tell us a lot about what our values are. And nobody questions my values that are obvious. I didn't, I, I didn't have to teach my kids how to be Redskin fans. They just knew that that's what we were. And that's what everybody was to be. And there was no questions about it. Same with Auburn. We're all Auburn fans. There's no question about it. You just, if you're going to honor your grandfather, not me, I'm talking about my father. If you're going to honor, honor your grandfather, you will be an Auburn fan. None of my kids were born in Alabama. Probably half of them haven't even been to Alabama. And we're all Auburn fans. That's our value. People, people know, they pick up on what your values are, how you use your time, what you do with those things. And while there's a place for fandom, while there's a place for entertainment, the context of our lives is built in the local church. And the way that the local church is built is through same care one for another. Intentional ministry, face-to-face ministry with each other. And you are competent to do that. You know, when we were talking about those uh, folks at the beginning, Beth was our first one. You know, the, the, the issue, when you, when you think about Beth, the issue for her was, you know, you, you, could, you could come to the conclusion that, well, she was struggling with pride. She was reputation conscious. She was, you know, she had all these, you know, different problems. But really, was pride or fear of rejection really the issue? I mean, she, she, she sought out help. And when she sought that help out and when people asked questions, realized that her anxieties were directly connected to insensitivity and unkindness in, her respo- in the responses that she had gotten from her friends during her teenage years. And, and she really did go through a, a season where she was excluded 
Now, all of you 18 and under, some of you have probably experienced that. Where you're, you're just not cool like I am. And that's not your fault. But if I treat you as you don't count, that's going to have an effect on you at that age. And she carried that in, not dealing with it. And it wasn't as simply, it wasn't as simple as her pride. Her pride was involved. But it it wasn't as simple as that. There were reasons why she responds the way that she responds. Correct? The same way. There were reasons. I mean, he spent years serving in the church, building a good marriage, raising two sons, climbing the corporate ladder. Yes, he was being self-centered at times. But how do we get into his life? Do we try to fix the self-sufficiency that's there and say, well, you've got to fix this. You're, you're being self-sufficient. It, it's getting in your way. Pursuit of God. And there was truth to that. But there was also a real big issue a failure in his life. He feared it more than he feared God. And he was wrestling with a fear of failure. And the only thing that gave him any sense of relief from that fear of failure was drinking. Listen, as one who has dealt with fear of failure over the years, I find it very easy, I found it very easy to identify with him. And I get it. And you know what? Let's talk about that. So what if you fail? So what? What does God communicate to you? How how can you feel the presence of God even in the midst of your struggles and your failures? What I found is that in some of the deepest failures is where I have found the deepest grace and mercy of God. I don't live with a sense that, okay, my failures because God is punishing me for sin. I'm tempted to feel that. I shouldn't. I said that kind of like it. I'd never do. I mean, it is there. But learning that it's not the way he relates to me in those situations. He pours out his grace and mercy and love and in the midst of those failures. Now, Lisa, we didn't really know, didn't really understand all that was going on there. We, we, we talked for a while. I, I counseled the two, two of them for a while. And, and we never really found, got to the root, if you will, of what was going on with her and, and why she was feeling the way that she was feeling, how the, the battle, you know, in her relationship with her, hus- her husband But what we did find was that as they got involved in the local church and started serving and pouring themselves into the local church, things just seemed to take care 
of themselves. And I use that illustration to say, even though we are competent to care, it's still not up to us. The work that's going to be done is going to be done by the Spirit of God. And it was done by the Spirit of God in them through the context of the corporate church. They were with us for about four years. Yeah, three or four years. And then job situation, they moved, didn't get involved in a local church, and things fell apart for them. It's not always going to end well. People sin. People have fallen. This world is broken. People are going to disappoint you. You don't stop caring. You don't stop loving. You don't stop caring. Stop caring. Let me just end by saying, you are in a context here where this local church, people you're sitting next to, you all can be one of the more, most powerful centers of care in Atlanta. There's all kinds of centers of care. There People go to find jobs. They go to find food. They go, there's all kinds of, but, but to be known as a place, you, your soul needs work. Your soul needs care. This is where you go. These people love one another. Those people accept me the way that I am. I feel safe there. I feel like I can Share my heart there. Now, a lot of you sitting here probably saying, because it's be true in my church too, saying, uh, uh. no, it is. God's at work. It is. Step into it. Lean into it. Lean into the work that God is calling you to do. And those of you who do feel that way, Get busy. Express your love and care for one another. Serve one another. Father, thank you for just giving me this opportunity to release this burden. Lord, how grateful I am for this church and all that it has endured and been through. And yet, Lord, here they are, a testimony of your great grace. Lord, I pray that you would continue to bless this church. Pour out your spirit upon this church. Be with this leadership team. Continue to anoint your word. And Lord, raise up those who will care one for another. Ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.